Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. If you're a trainer or an educator, how can you know for sure that your learners are actually learning anything? In this episode, the first of a new season, we look at a group of thinkers who have focused on that question, giving us models of how to measure and evaluate learning. But do their models have the rigour and consistency necessary to tell us useful truths about the impact of learning? Welcome everybody to this first episode of Season 5 of Great Minds on Learning. I'm here with my co-host Donald Clark as usual. We're tackling evaluations time, how people have theorised and systematised measuring the impact of learning. I'm very conscious that our listeners span the different worlds of education and organisational learning. So mindful of that, Donald, I think I have to exercise my privilege here of being allowed to ask dumb questions of a very smart person. Just why is evaluation so different in the training world than it is in the world of education? After all, it doesn't seem to be an issue in education. If you want to know whether they've learned anything, you just give them an exam. Why do we need a theory of evaluation in workplace learning? And in answering that, perhaps you can give us a general introduction to what we're going to be covering today. Uh, but first, I'm just going to warn the listeners of one thing. They have to pay close attention. There will be a test. <laughs> I suppose that word test or exam is is a good one to hang our hat on for an opening gambit, as it were. Because I, I think Nick Shackleton John makes this point all the time that we often confuse schooling with training. I think he's right. You know, we often confuse the two. Uh, but there's a good reason for that, in that schooling and higher education, let's call it schooling in general, is, is very different. You know, take the first that we see on TV every time the GCSE or A-level results come out, you know. That's because actually those institutions are really about credentials and cre- credentialism, you know. Uh, and that's why higher education has so much thrown themselves in a complete tism panic about plagiarism and essays on AI. You never hear them discuss the benefits of AI for teaching and learning. They're all completely freaked out by the fact that students can cheat on their essays or something. But that's because they're in the game of the fundamental goal is credentialism. Not really teaching and learning, it's about having that big rubber stamp that gives people degrees or a GCSE or whatever it is these days, A-levels, T-levels. So, but that doesn't exist in L&D very much. You know, we don't really give people degrees. Of course, that's why the badges thing, I've talked about this before, but I think the badges thing has run its course. It didn't really work. They're all a bit odd, a bit simple and weird, you know. So I think think we're talking about evaluation, which is different from assessment. Evaluation is looking at a much bigger picture thing, not... You know, credentials are about the individual. I get my GCSE, I get my degree, whatever. Evaluation is much wider because it looks at the individual and the development of the individual, but also organizational goals, whether, you you know, it's workplace learning, it's organizational learning. So it's a much wider remit. And therefore, you've got to look not just as whether you've got a bit of paper or not, what's inside your head, but whether you can actually do something in the workplace and whether it has any impact on the goals of the organization. That's the fundamental difference there. Yeah. It says something in there as well that within an organization, that organization is going to have the the, the, the kind of fisc- fiscal impact of underperformance 
Whereas with an institutional educational institution, all they have to do is to, to, to get good looking results and credentials and so on. And then they chuck them out into the world. Um, and if they are training people who are really incompetent, it's going to be a while before uh, that comes to the surface. And it will be the organization at the end of it that, that, that suffers. Whereas if you're you know, CEO and you're talking to your head of L&D, um, you are the one that's going to have the, trouble, have, have the problem on your balance sheet. So is that yeah. what makes the difference or is that too simplistic? That's a very good point, John. I mean, I often compare, I often make the take that to a sort of almost redu- reductive ad absurdum or extreme. Uh, or you have to say, well, why do pilots spend so much time in training and go through all these intense 300 hours of simulator? And that's because the pilot goes down with the plane, <laughs> you know? Uh, now, teachers in schools don't go down with the kids if they fail their GCSE, neither do, neither certainly lecturers don't go down with students if they even sort of quit their degree courses or whatever. It doesn't really matter what you do in a university. You're not going to get sacked for bad teaching. Uh, but in organisations, I think you're right. The the onus is on the L&D and HR department to make sure that people are up to, up to speed, skilled, compliant with the law, blah, blah, blah. And that can be quite dangerous for organisations if you get it wrong. Mm. So... I think that's right. It's a good point. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but you're right. That's why evaluation matters in a sense, you know, leading into what we're going to... Of course, the, the corollary of that is quite strange because although evaluation matters a whole lot, L&D doesn't do much of it. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I don't think it, it does hardly any evaluation, you know? And I think there's a reason for that, and then that is that it's essentially a supply department. It says, oh, do these courses on this, that, and the next thing. It's not really a demand. It's not really demand in terms of, is this improving the overall worth of the organization? Because, I mean, a good example here is very famously is diversity training. So we know absolute certainty, although I haven't yet to meet somebody who delivers or spends all this money in diversity training, who's actually read the evaluated research, and there's oodles of it. So you've got people like Dobbin, uh, Dobbin, I've forgotten the other two, Okokin, Kedar, uh, Kalev. These are massive longitudinal trials, you know, big, big numbers, 600 companies. Uh, the Dobbin thing, I think, was 708 private companies initially, and it showed no, virtually no effect of diversity training whatsoever. No effect. That is unbelievable. Alexander Kalev's study was similar. I think it was over 800, I think it was something like 830 companies looking for an effect. Okay, hmm. uh, that came out of the University of, uh, of Arizona, and again, actually, interestingly, they found some negative effects, and yet we still spend literally billions on DEI training when we know, when all the big studies, and it's been in the Harvard Business Review, it's published in the journals, but nobody reads it. Now that's a proper evaluation, really big money, high-end intellectual research, great data great conclude or conclusions, whether they're great or not, nobody reads it. And that's because there's an, an indifference to this, which I think is worrying. And that's an external evaluation, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's the best kind, you know. It's the best kind. But the training isn't being internally evaluated. Well, there's a problem with internal evaluation because your personal goals are always going to sort of skew you towards evaluating the things you would like to believe and therefore there's a great danger that you know you're you're on self-diagnosis and I think that's what happens really to be honest all those happy sheet things and so on let's suppose you really got happy sheet stuff that said this course was a complete and utter waste of time do you ever see that or do you ever hear about that no everything's always hunky-dory 
everyone's all all nice back at the ranch. And therefore, I feel that, uh, you know, this is a worrying thing, really, that we don't evaluate and that so Nick Shackleton-Jones, going back to him, is right. And that's because, really, and even when we do evaluate, we evaluate whether people have, you know, those crappy multiple choice questions at the end of modules or something. We don't take it through into a proper evaluative context and whether transfer into the workplace has taken place, whether it's really been applied, whether it's resulted in an increase in sales, a reduction in tribunals, a better product design, whatever the goal of the organization is. So I, I think that's one of the big worries here that, uh, you know, there are lots of methods for evaluation here, but in truth, do we do much of it? I don't think so. And what we do is pretty poor. And there's a paradox there, isn't there? Because apparently nobody does any of it, but it's not because of the lack of evaluation models. Out no, there. no. The amount of work that is done on evaluation, there's a huge amount. I did my own um, minor study at, at one point for, for, for a client and counted up all the evaluation models I could find. <laughs> yeah. There's hundreds of them. Oh, there's loads of them, yeah. and. I think one of the problem, the basic problem is we've got all these, they're all pretty good. The evaluation, I've yet to read one that I go, yeah, that's fair enough. You know, it seemed reasonable. Some are better than others, and we'll come to that in a moment. Hmm. But I think the bottom line is there's a bit of fear as to what a true evaluation would find out. So on diversity, for example, well, I'll tell you what, we can know from the research what you will find, and that is that most of what you're trying doesn't actually work. Now, we know that. We know that from the research, and yet we don't do anything about it. But in other areas, I feel... Like the happy sheet phenomenon is qualitative, you know, and of course it, it's just so hopeless, the happy sheet thing, you know, statistically it isn't sampling, statistically it's unrepresentative because not everybody fills one out. So it's just mathematically below GCSE level arithmetic, never mind maths. And so, but that's the level it's at. Uh, and th th this is not true of everyone. Some people do it superbly well. I think Kevin Yates on your one in the podcast recently said it, the, the problem is that people feel you're going to be boiling the ocean, I think was the phrase he used, you know. Yeah. But that's yeah. not necessary. I don't think you need to boil the ocean, but at least you have to have a boat to set off with a destination, some cargo and, you know, like a chart, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to just staying in the dry dock and getting people to fill in a, a happy sheet and not going anywhere. I Sorry, I've stretched that <laughs> metaphor to breaking point there. Yeah. But you get, you get my drift. You don't have to go the full hog and go into I mean, some big companies have the the budget, the people and the skills to effectively do a large-scale evaluation. I think that's fine. But even in large companies, you find it's quite rare to do it in depth and breadth. And, of course, there are loads of them. You know, we, we'll deal today with the big one, which I think is the weakest, actually, is Kirkpatrick, and then Brinkerhoff, Thalheimer, and another one that I really like, uh, which not many people will, will have heard of, and that's Anderson. But the other ones, the other ones are some of them are really extensions of Kirkpatrick. So you've got Phillips and Kaufman are two sort of five levels of evaluation people. You've got Shufflebeam Stake, Atkins, uh, Provis was another one, but Eisner. And so, you know, you got a, those are just off the top of my head. There are loads of these things. And no doubt you could carry on listing and listing. But I think what we'll focus today on is. Uh, let's call it, you know, the top three, top three or four, I think. Certainly the top three that I know of and I hear mentioned over the years, Kirkpatrick, Brinkerhoff and Thalheimer because it's more recent. Donald, was it difficult 
drawing up this list and limiting it to just these four, given that there are so many? Not really, because I, I, I felt as though there was this group that a lot of people have heard of, those three in particular. Hmm. I went, you know, because I've been I've been blogging about this and discussing it, and people say, "Can you recommend anything other than Kirkpatrick?" And Brinkerhoff's always been there, yeah. and, and Will Falheim, or more recently, because it's a much more recent model. I can't remember when Will wrote it; it was two thousand six, seven or something. I, I don't know. I can't remember when he first came out out with it, but that's more recent. Remember, <laughs> Kirkpatrick goes back. It's something like eighty years old. <laughs> it's unbelievable that it's that old. Nineteen fifty four, I think, was the first date. We'll come to him in a minute, but yeah. Whereas uh, Will's uh, United Sneak preview of Will's gr- new book, which is all about evaluation for CEOs, and what CEOs is addressing the tops of organisations saying, what on earth are you doing here? You're wasting so much money in L&D. Why don't you just take a proper strategic view of it and do it well? It's a really interesting book. Uh, I got a sneak preview and it will be out soon. But I think it was really worth putting Will in here as well, because that's a big, thorough one. The problem is some of the models are big and complicated. And people, you know, by and large, people are doing that order taking, delivering courses, and then they move on to the next course. And they've forgotten about the previous one. It's all very faddish. You know, it used to be mindfulness. Was it this year? Resilience. And so the evaluation doesn't really come into their head much, to be honest. But I think if you're looking at the big picture, Senior HR and L&D people should be should know about these models, first of all. And secondly, consider the use, choose one or choose none if you wish, but certainly be intellectually aware of what's available. I think it's a useful first step. Yeah. Well, let's get started and start with the, the granddaddy of learning. <laughs> yeah. Granddaddy, well, he's not. He's no longer with us, to be fair, Donald Kirkpatrick. But his son carried on with the business. So I was just going to say that. <laughs> All right, sorry. <laughs> Donald L. Kirkpatrick, nineteen twenty-four to twenty fourteen. So as you say, um, died quite recently. Donald L. Kirkpatrick was professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin in the United States and a past president of the American Society for Training and Development (ASTD). He's best known for creating a highly influential four-level model for training course evaluation, which served as the subject of his PhD dissertation in 1954. Kirkpatrick's ideas were published to a broader audience in 1959 in a series of articles in the US Training and Development Journal, but they're better known from a book he published in 1994 entitled Evaluating Training Programs. And when people started using technology, um, the, the four levels became really more important then, in a way. So the four levels have become absolutely ABC of evaluation and workplace learning. I can't imagine that there's that many people listening who haven't heard of Kirkpatrick, in fact. But people have pointed out that his model actually owes a lot to the work of Raymond Katzel. So it should be more properly called the Kirkpatrick-Katzel model. Kirkpatrick's son Jim and daughter-in-law Wendy continue his work through their firm Kirkpatrick Partners. So it's a family concern, as as, as you said, Donald. Yeah. Donald Kirkpatrick um, was born in Wisconsin, did his BA, MA and PhD at Wisconsin University and became a professor there in Wisconsin, um, pretty much based there all his life. In 2011, he retired and took up writing and recording songs that you can listen to on his band camp. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I had a listen. Um, I did a bit of an evaluation, and I'd say it's not my cup of tea. But I'll, <laughs> I'll put the, um, 
You know, uh, Susie, she's a wonderful girl and she can curl you around her finger with some, um, well, some, some quite good, but rather plinky plonky piano accompaniments. I'll put the link up there and people could do their own evaluation. That's great. This is a towering figure in learning evaluation or joking aside with an enduring legacy still with us today, very much so. Can you talk us through the four levels and tell us what did he get right and what you might want to give him a bit of a fail for? Yeah, right. I was doing the mental calculation there, John, in my head there, 1954, so it's older than me. <laughs> so you're talking, you're talking, it, now, we're now starting to get 70 years old on a, on a theory that hasn't changed much since then. And I remember, I remember, uh, I met Donald when he was alive, this is many years ago in Denver, Colorado, and uh, I remember he, he gave a talk and he said, this came as a complete, I wrote this PhD thesis, it came as a complete and utter surprise that people in L&D picked up on it. He had no interest in doing it, but it suddenly so sort of exploded. And then, of course, like lots of these things, it's like Myers-Briggs, you know, it becomes a company, it becomes a marketing, marketing exercise, and that's why it gets deeply embedded, you know, because people are selling it. And that's true of a lot of the learning styles theories, for example, VAC and so on. You suddenly had an army of consultants and evaluators, whatever, selling this as a practitioner thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, let's back to your question, though. You know, the, the four levels that we all know about, the first one is the most famous and the most useless of all, of course, the happy sheet level. That's reaction. Did you like the biscuits? <laughs> you know, that sort of question, you know. That's what it tells you nothing about learning. You're just saying, yeah, did you like it? Was it fun? Did you feel it was adequate, perceived relevance and stuff? They do that. But people are quite delusional, actually, about, we, we know this from the research, that people are quite delusional about learning. They, don't, they, feel, they always feel as though they've learned something, but if you test them, it's sometimes doubtful. So level one reaction. Level two is the learning one, and that's more formal. Now, what Kirkpatrick recommended was pre- and post-testing. Of course, a lot of people miss out the pre-testing, <laughs> just give post-tests, because pre-testing is actually quite difficult. But it is important if you're measuring the real differential, which is what the evaluation of the training should be doing. But of course, just giving a post-test or end or summative test actually doesn't tell you that much. It tells you where everybody's got to, but they might have known all that stuff at the beginning. The third one, so that was reaction, learning. The third one's behavior. And this is where it gets, level three is much more interesting because you're looking at whether you've had transfer from the acquired knowledge, skills, training into the workplace. Has it had any causal effect on your performance and your impact in your job? And one of the weaknesses there is a lot of that is also done by questionnaires and interviews and so on. And people are a bit all over the place with that stuff. They always say, they always say positive things, of course, because there's a huge skew in the data. But at least behavior, it used to be there were, there were people in organizations when I first started in this business who whose job it was to measure uh, actual work behaviors and they had little checklists and pads and would observe people in the workplace. That all went really. Uh, and now it's just down to the good old, you know, Google document with a few questions, you know, with five options. And then the, the most important one of all, though, and then the one that the most important one and the one that's least implemented as level four on results. What improvements in the organization came as a result of the training itself? And so those four levels, one, two, three, four, reaction, learning, behavior, and impact or results. The first two, one is all done, that's a waste of time. Two is done, but it's done badly. We hardly ever get to three and four, even though they're the most important of all. 
So mm. it's almost like a ladder where people never get up more than one rung. Therefore, they're not repairing any roofs. They're not going anywhere. So we should add, I think it's worth adding at this point that there's been some, people knew what the weaknesses were. So Jack Phillips comes along. He adds a fifth one, return on investment. But actually, you can just include that in level four anyway. I'm not too sure they needed another fifth level. I was always really puzzled by the Phillips thing. Kaufman, however, and this is a more ex interesting extension because he also added return on investment uh, as a fifth level. That's fine. But he also divided level one, the really weak one in Kirkpatrick, into input and process. To be fair, there have been some attempts to fiddle about with it, make it better. But to be honest, I think the whole thing's flawed because it's simplistic. We should be thinking of levels anyway. We should be thinking, uh, you know, just get rid of the stuff that doesn't matter and go for gold, go for impact. It would be my view. It is really worth dwelling on Kirkpatrick on some of the severe criticisms because there have been loads there, you know. I think, and just to run through them, some of them very quickly, I think favourable, you know, that, that's a favourable reactions on happy sheets. Don't tell you a damn thing about learning. It, it, they may have learned nothing, but still felt happy. You can be happy. You can be happy and stupid. <laughs> and also, they're very rarely sampled, which is what you should be doing in large organisations statistically. So they just get everybody to fill one in, which is statistically a bit stupid, long-winded, and even pencils. We have to put them in a spreadsheet, all that stuff. Neither are they often representative. I mean, I give talks at conferences where they put these out, you know, on seats, evaluation sheets, and of course, who's to say that? the people who pick them up are representative of the people in the room as a whole. Mm. So, so you see, you're almost a bit inevitably going to get a skewed sample. Now, in the testing one, the endpoint testing is crude crap, you know, usually testing learner's short-term memory with some multiple choice questions. So I think that's inadequate anyway, very primitive, narrow ones. And then uh, on the good behavior one, that is quite complicated. Takes time, takes money, so people don't do much of it. Uh, and level four, of course, is ignored because the time you thought about level four and you're a bit scared of finding out that the courses don't work, then you've moved on to your next set of courses. And so, you know, a lot of this is like summative, ignoring the research, ignoring context, ignoring methods of delivery. You know, it doesn't really take into account all the, let's say, informal learnings that takes place in organizations. How do you evaluate that? Because that's actually how most people learn. Hmm. Maybe you're doing good things there that don't get captured by Kirkpatrick. It's totally inappropriate for informal learning. Hmm. And actually, it's not really what management want anyway. I've never heard the management going, have you heard of Kirkpatrick before? They don't know a damn thing about Kirkpatrick. So it's something that's fed to them by L&D. And actually, senior people don't want all the level one, two stuff. They are not interested in whether you got nine out of ten or whether you like the biscuits. What they are interested in is whether you've got any proof as to whether all that money they've just spent had an impact on their organization, because that's what they're accountable for. So, you know, the fact that it's irrelevant, costly, long-winded, and statistically weak is a bit worrying. People have kind of built on this. They've, they've changed it. they come up with uh, alternative models. But before we move on, is it worth asking the question, why has it lasted? It's lasted longer than you, Donald. So you must yes. have been going for it. I mean, the fact that you can sort of reel off the four levels without consulting the notes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, you lose the four some of the others. So simplicity is a good thing. But it, is that the only reason you've still got it? You could comment that last one. Yeah, I think that, yeah, L&D really likes really simple models, preferably with three or four things in them. Uh, you know, that's the learning styles. VAK, really easy to remember, complete nonsense. 
And I think that's part of it, the simplicity of the model. I think the second one I've already mentioned for its longevity is the fact that it got turned into a business by his son. Oh, yeah. And thirdly, you you can do a bit of it really easy through happy sheets. <laughs> and so the, it's almost like it, the word Kirkpatrick, not the person or the method, has been uh, has been marked like hell. But I think there's a deep, hollow, vacuous hollow in the middle of all this, which is it's easy to go to that and ignore the serious evaluation and research, such as the papers I described at the beginning, the massive evaluations on diversity, for example, and other topics, compliance especially. If we really did evaluate properly, I think it would be worrying what we what we're likely to find. It's risky, certainly, isn't it? I mean, it's also similar to Myers Briggs. I think you know it's that old. You, it just it's a name that gets locked into people, and then they forget what its origins were. Uh, they they stick with the simple because it's memorable and it's easy. The point you just made there, John. Whereas evaluation is actually a real proper evaluation requires some maths and return on investment with payback periods. You know, there's a bit of complication there. And L and D is not. I think we're not very good at handling things that need statistics, data, and mathematics. Robert O. Brinkerhoff. Robert O. Brinkerhoff, Ed D., is Professor of Counselling Psychology at Western Michigan University, where he coordinates graduate programmes in human resources development. I should say I'm a bit hampered with almost everybody apart from Kirkpatrick on biographical information because they're still alive. And uh, yeah. as we mentioned before, uh, information about when academics were born is disappearing from the internet. <laughs> uh, and even in this case, from Wikipedia, yeah, yeah. anyone's got a Wikipedia entry. I'm sure it's not because evaluation, learning evaluation is such an obscure subject. I mean, I've got a Wikipedia page for God's sake. <laughs> um, anyway, Brinkerhoff. <laughs> he also served as CEO of the Learning Alliance in Portage, Michigan, a firm that provides training and consultation in learning and performance improvement, measurement, and effectiveness. It's also affiliated with Advantage Performance Group and Next Learning, so commercial um, involvements, presumably, uh, apart from just academic. So his prior work experience includes a five-year stint as an officer in the U.S. Navy. This is an interesting bit of biographical information. A carpenter, charter boat mate in the West Indies, grocery salesman in Puerto Rico, and a factory labourer in Birmingham, England. Now, that's an odd sort of CV, isn't it? where he saw the original Beatles, I mean, that dates him, <laughs> um, in, in Birmingham. He earned a doctorate at the University of Virginia in program evaluation, where he also directed the Evaluation Training Consortium, an 11-year project funded by the US Office of Special Education that provided training in program evaluation. Donald, there are a lot of people in this field whose work builds on Kirkpatrick, usually adding extra levels, but Brinkhoff takes a distinctly different approach to Yes, this is why I quite like it. I, I suspect Brinkerhoff hasn't been successful because of his name. <laughs> you know, is it Brinkerhoff, Brinkerhoff, Brinkerhoff? You know, it's, it's such a weird name to try and remember. And always when I'm writing it, I always misspell it, you know. But uh, maybe he should have changed his name. But uh, yeah, his success case method, I think, is interesting, nevertheless, because he takes a more, a, big, a bigger picture what you may call a more qualitative approach, I suppose, because he, this uh, success case case method was a methodology, the SCM methodology. They all like their methodologies, of course. But 
it starts off with it starts off with a very interesting view, which focuses not just on what goes well, but also what goes wrong. I like this. So it goes for best and worst cases. The opening gambit on the on his methodology is to survey people, which I think is okay, to identify as you know where the successes were, but also the failures where actually you found it difficult or you found it challenging to apply this in the workplace. Well, you know, I think that was quite healthy. Broke the mold in terms of the Kirkpatrick model. Then he goes in, then what he does is is picks up on in-depth interviews. It's a bit like storytelling in a little bit, which I'm not a great fan of, but it's interesting here. He takes selected people and always selected success and success and failure case studies and writes them up in details. And what he's trying to do is try to identify success factors on the one hand, but also whatever barriers, challenges, things that caused failure on the other. Now, that's healthy. It's a very honest view of evaluation. It's a bit like ethics. You need to know the good and the bad, not just the bad. So, or the good. So so that after the in-depth interviews, he moves on to widening it out even more. He, he gets the stories and experiences from these interviews, and then they try and do some analysis. And this is where it gets a wee bit more quantitative not qualitative, because he's looking for patterns, insights, lessons learned, and so on, to come to some clear conclusions about what we should do next time. And I think that recognition of failure is a really positive feature of the Brinkerhoff system. And then, of course, he writes the the report at the end, which has all these, you know, if there are any really good, compelling success stories, he's got them in there. But what's really important for him, and this is why I like this system, is it also has insights on what you need to change and improve because there's almost inevitably some of that. We tend to deliver courses, never change them. We don't know if they worked or not, and we deliver it the same year, the, the same thing next year. He's saying, no, 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 you must get into a sort of feedback loop, which is the final level thing in his in his schema, as it were. So the insights from SEM, they're fed back into the learning a program or initiative or experience that you've delivered. And that's what makes it radically different from this whole Kirkpatrick thing. Mm-hmm. So it's way beyond smile sheets into much better qualitative and quantitative metrics to get this much deeper, subtler, more nuanced view of the world. I think that's what that's what differentiates them from Kirkpatrick. And yet hardly anybody knows the method or or Hardly anybody's implemented the method. And I think that's a real shame because it, it's a, for some organizations, I think it fits very, very well. Is it, has it not much been implemented because it's uh, usual reasons that it's complicated and expensive? Well, actually, you, I think you can actually, because it's qualitative and you can go in and just have one person doing all this stuff. Mm. I think you can do it quite quickly and quite cheaply. But I think one of the reasons it's not implemented is it has that word, well, let's look at what went wrong. Yeah, um, people. Ooh, ooh, I'm not too sure about that, so they shy away from it. Uh, but I, I have no idea why it hasn't been more successful than Kirkpatrick, because I think it's better than Kirkpatrick. Uh, but I suspect it just hadn't had the marketing push. But I think also that notion that the danger is you uncover, and the whole point of uncovering failure is a good thing here, you know, because you're also trying to uncover. What goes wrong in the workplace? You know, what challenges do you have there? Do we need to deliver a different type of training here? Maybe we shouldn't be delivering training at all. Maybe it should be performance support. All that's the it raises those questions quite nicely, opens up a panorama. Which can be very unpopular. What one question I had about it, 
one of the really distinctive things is the initial one of um, choosing the best case and the worst case to look at. Yeah. Is, is that particularly scientific? So, so no, it's, 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 it felt that's, really odd when I first read that. Well, that's a very good question because actually what you'll get is a distribution curve and what he's doing is taking an outlier on one end or the other. Yeah. But it's interesting when you read what he writes about this, he has a sort of rationale for that, which is you could you could actually do a whole rack of things right across the sort of range. But actually what, what gives you the most insights are what worked really well and what worked really badly. Mm. And I think for him it's just a better a better way of sampling, if you want to call it that, so that you don't have to spend a huge amount of money on looking at everything. Statistically, it's a bit odd just taking uh, the one, you know, either either end of a distribution curve and then using that data only uh, because it doesn't say much about the vast, you know, the, the, the stuff in the middle. But to be fair, I think it's still useful because I think you do, I think you do get quite a wide distribution curve in training where it's had no effect on some people, but some people really enthusiastically build and take take it up. But it's definitely a weakness. Well spotted. I think that's right. There's absolutely no precedent within the education system for an approach like that. Is it? I mean, if you think of a kind of a teacher with a class, they will have their outliers who are who just fly through everything, who are really good. Yeah. About those. They'll have the the people who just do really badly and are probably very disruptive and so on. Um, and their yeah. job is kind of about um dealing with those on administrative. <laughs> You know, crowd control kind of level largely, but it, it doesn't come into the exam system so much, doesn't it? We just want to get kind of as many people as possible. Yeah. Um, well, it's not about people here. Yeah, I suppose you're making a judgment on the methods. So I think there's a really good point about taking the failures because those things you want to stop. So taking the outliers and failure, it's a, that's a really important thing because quite simply, you shouldn't be doing them. So I get the rationale for that. I'm not too sure about the rationale for just taking the big successes because success is, uh, you know, success is a matter of degree in a way that failure, absolute failure especially, is not. So I think there's an asymmetry between the two there. I can see why he focuses on, on failures because you just want to stop them. It's like green and red light. Mm. But I think successes are more like a range. It's what Bloom used to say about time to competence. You know, if you give people enough time, they'll get to competence anyway uh, and therefore uh, don't start you know, splitting them into groups. It's just that people are faster and slower. But uh, it's good. It's it's almost certainly a weakness of the, the system, yeah. You winkled that one out. I like that. Yeah. I'll do a bit more winkling then. <laughs> <laughs> are, are we ready to go winkling with, with Will? Yeah. Okay, so Will Thalheimer, am I pronouncing it right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Will Thalheimer, PhD MBA, is a principal at Tier 1 Performance. It's a company. He's a world-renowned speaker, writer, researcher, and consultant focused on research-based best practices for learning design, learning evaluation, and presentation design. Prior to Tier 1, Will founded and ran Work Learning Research, again, another organization, for 22 years where his research reviews are still available. Will wrote the award-winning book, Performance-Focused Learning Surveys, created LTEM, the Learning Transfer Evaluation Model, 
and the pres Presentation Science Workshop. Will co-created the Learning Development Accelerator and the E-Learning Manifesto. I invited Will to appear on the Learning Hack once, but he was too busy. Doesn't take these things personally. <laughs> We're most interested in, though, I suspect, is his LTM. Um, and I, I, I know he's a very worthy contributor to, 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 to the profession. Can you tell us about the LTM, though, Donald? Yeah, well, first of all, Will, I think he may have left that organisation to another one, but... Uh... First of all, everybody loves Will. I love, you know, I love Will. I've met Will. I know him. He's, he's a really nice bloke. And I, actually, one of the things that's really important to remember is he has a really good reputation on learning science in, in the industry as a famous debunker, you know, that, and it's not all about debunking. Actually, his debunking is quite serious, you know, deep dives into topics, uncovering the origins of, of mistakes like Dale's Cone and so on. And and a number of things he's he's written some amazing pieces. On, just to go through some of them, is confidence as a predictor. You know that, and this is something I mentioned earlier in this podcast. You've got to be very careful in asking learners about whether they've learned something or not, because they're not very good at predict. Their confidence is not a good prediction as to whether they've learned something or are going to learn it at all. Learning styles, of course, he's done all that stuff. Uh, lots of people. And all the neuroscience myths, which I quite like, you know, that he's 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 not knocked on the head. Attention span research, you know, the the, the idea that they're shrinking because of technology. Yes. Feedback. Another really one I I love because I think hardly anybody knows about it, and that's the belief that immediate feedback is necessary or is always the best. It's not quite true, actually. Feedback sometimes needs to be delayed. All sorts of complex cognitive reasons for that. That's good work, and of course, Ebbinghaus and so on. So. Is is a famous debunker, but LTM is the the thing. LTEM, sorry, the learning trainer evaluation model. That's what we're discussing in the context of today's podcast. And so, did you ask me just summarize that, or what would you like me to do in it? Is yes, it, I think so because that that is his major contribution on evaluation. Yeah, I think learning transfer rather than training, learning transfer evaluation model. That's right. So learning transfer evaluation model. Transfer is quite important, isn't it? Well, it's, it's critical, in fact. So, well, his model is much more expansive than the others, and it's possibly, I, I'm, I would say, I, I don't know if Will would disagree, it's more appropriate for larger organisations, I would say, because there's a lot in it. It has eight, what he calls, not levels like Kirkpatrick, calls it eight tiers, like tiers on a wedding cake. Mm. And you're, you're getting to the happy couple at the top. And the first one is... He sort of just breaks it out and stretches at someone. The first one is just right, straight up easy, tier one, attendance. I think that's okay. You know, did people turn up or not? How many people were there? You know, I'm not too sure about it as a tier in itself, but it's there. That's okay. The second one, tier two, is activity. In other words, what did they actually do when they turned up? And I was, was the real thing. And again, I, I, I think it's okay. But I, again, I don't like the word engagement very much because I think you can be engaged and not learn a damn thing. You know, my, my old anecdote, I'm just back from the Edinburgh Festival. I've been at hundreds and hundreds of stand-up comic things, can't remember a single joke. I don't really like engagement. It's a bad proxy for learning. But activity, and he, he's talking about participation, interactivity, active learning, you know. So level two is activity. One attendance, two activity, the two A's. So I always remember them. The third one's learning perceptions. And I was, this is more like, this is Kirkpatrick level one, really, which is, you know, what did they think about it? What were the reactions and feelings about the training? To be honest, I'm not that interested in that because I don't think it tells you anything about whether they've learned or not, but it, that's tier three. Tier four is knowledge. It gets a bit bloomy here in Bloom's Pyramid, but 
that's the degree to which people have really understood, you know, the basic need to know type knowledge in order to implement what they're going to receive in the training course. Has it covered that well? I think that's quite nice because people diss the knowledge part of courses, but it's often a really necessary condition for success in a learning experience. Being able to get to grips with the basic vocabulary, uh, you know, glossary of terms, understanding what they mean as well, and the language that's used, as well as some basic facts and knowledge about the subject or domain that is being addressed. So attendance, activity, there was the third one again, perceptions, that's right, the Kirkpatrick uh, level three, and then the, the, the knowledge one and four. Now, it gets more sophisticated because it then, I think, really cleverly goes into decision-making here. It raises the bar somewhat, this is level five on decision-making. So it's whether you're competent at actually being able to do things. Mm. Uh, and, but there's not, it's not quite tasks yet, that's level six. What he's saying is, can you use the knowledge and skills you've got to make rational decisions about what you should do next? That's quite often action-orientated assessment, uh, role-playing, whatever, you know. Level six is task competence. I like this. This measures the learner's ability to actually do something in the real world. Can you use a pivot on an Excel spreadsheet? Can you actually, if that machine goes wrong, diagnose it and get it working again? Can you use your laptop, blah, blah, blah? So I think the whole task competence thing is whether you've been, your performance has actually improved or not. And that needs a certain form of assessment. And that's where the level seven comes in. I always remember these T's, the two T's at the end. The uh, level, level seven is transfer. In other words, there's a huge amount of interesting literature here about what makes good transfer from the cognitive tasks of training into the real world. We know a lot about this, uh, but we steadfastly ignore a lot of it because it doesn't mean a lot of knowledge training. It does mean a lot of action-oriented, scenario-based, simulation stuff for pilots, all those sort of things that may affect transfer. Uh, I've been working on a big project on this, and you know, there's a whole load of stuff about what you need to you need to motivate people as individuals to transfer knowledge. You also have to understand what, what all the bake it into the training, so it's more action-oriented supposed to knowledge recall. You also have to make the organization sort of transfer ready. You know, in other words, they have to allow people to actually experiment and try things out for a bit and fail even. So transfer is number seven. And then the big one, which is the one I always think, if you don't have it, you don't have any evaluation of what impact has this had on the organization? Has it really increased the culture of the organization, made it better? Has it improved sales? Has it reduced? reduced the number of complaints by staff on sexual harassment? Has it uh, gone beyond that and allowed us to have faster cycles of product development? There are loads of really concrete measures that the rest of the business uses, and I think training should use as well. So eight tiers. Okay, so, and, and he's really, key. I think it's what's important about Will's stuff is he's really keen that we use really good methods for for assessing this as well. Really authentic simulation, action-based type assessment, as opposed to multiple choice questions. Mm. So the, his system stands or falls by the, the detail of the assessment, I feel. And I think that's he's absolutely right there. He's, he's an old hand. He knows what he's talking about here, and he's right to focus on that. I think he says you don't need to bother so much with the first 
three or four. Yeah, that's if I've got any criticism of the method, I would say, you know, well, why worry about that? I mean, it gives you just a couple of variables. Who turned up? Well, that's just a number in a spreadsheet. You know, it takes five seconds to work that out. So I'm not too sure that it's worthy of being a tier. But nevertheless, I, I don't have any problem with it because it's just, you know, he's just, I think, to be fair to Will, he's trying to be thorough. He's going down this big ticket model with eight different tiers. It's like a full milk model, you want to call it that. Yeah. And so it's very thorough and well designed. You know, it's an admirable piece of work. But the question is, and that's why I say, well, is it suitable for smaller organizations? Because there's a cost and time and resources uh, issue around that. But that's not a criticism. It's just, you know, if you're going to do it properly, you have to do it properly. Yeah. On that one. It strikes me it's much more granular about how you get from knowing stuff to being able to perform stuff in the workplace and yeah. having an effect in that you have that kind of, as you say, a very interesting thing from knowledge to uh, to practice to transfer yeah. to. And, and if, you, if you see if you see those wider ratings on it, that, I, I may have misrepresented them a little bit by regarding all the tiers as equal. This is really like to use our boat analogy again, don't boil the ocean, but if you set up in your boat, you better be sure you know what your harbour destination is going to be here, and that's impact on the organisation. Mm -hmm. So he gives you the sort of the sails, the charts, the navigation ability to get there, and you have to go all the way. There's eight tiers, but you have to get to tier eight. If you don't, if you don't have that in mind from the beginning, then you're unlikely to succeed or be relevant. He's really keen on that, and that's admirable. So to ask that critical question brought up before, is it just too complicated and expensive for most organizations to do? Well, I'd make the distinction between large organizations and small, medium and small, really. <laughs> small ones tend not to do it anyway, even medium. But large organizations have choices here now. We've given them three already. We've given them Kirkpatrick and its variations. Uh, I'd be surprised if people don't do return on investment. So the original Kirkpatrick's a bit weak, maybe Kirkpatrick plus Phillips. You've got Brinkerhoff, I think, which is a much more, I think it's much more contemporary because it deals with a more holistic view of the, the effort and its impact. That's why I would prefer that over Kirkpatrick. But, and then Will's third one is, as I say, full milk, full on. But if you're going to do it seriously, you should be doing it. And, you know, you could go for shortcuts if you wish. But what Will's saying is if you want to do it properly, you better do it this way or else you're missing some of these steps. You miss some stuff. But as you rightly say, I think some of the, if I had the problem, it would be, you know, why measure, you know, is attendance and activity and perceptions that important? I'm not, I'm not convinced. Well, attendance might be the one thing that every L&D company actually does mention, you know, how many, how many people took the course. It's, that's one yeah. number. But yeah. you know, you can go down. Did they? Did they bring a note, notebook? Notebook? Did they have a pencil? <laughs> you can get everyone. The trouble is, you can gather all that stuff. But all you need to know, you know, knowing how many people attended courses, is, that's fine. But you know, the the bums on seat metric is the problem here. The reason I would miss it out is there's always been that famous line, which I quite like, is if you focus on bums and seats, you're focusing on the wrong end of the learner. <laughs> you know, it's what happens up here that matters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that the danger here is if you put effort and people will start off in the process and they do level one in Kirkpatrick or they do a little bit of stuff on Binkerhoff or they do one, two, and three of Thalheimer and then they run out of steam because something else has got their attention. That tends to happen. That's why I think Occam's Razor may be minimizing the number of levels, tiers, and so on. And if you're going to minimize it, chop those off, chop the ones off at the beginning is better than chopping the necessary condition necessary and of it in some cases sufficient 
a criteria at the end. Did that make sense? I think so. Ben Betts had an interesting kind of model of his own, Ben Betts at Learning Pool, which uh, I think think I'm saying this right, was called something like the Learning Evaluation Canvas. And it it took the Business Canvas model, which you Ah, you know about. Uh, and, and his approach was, uh, yes, this stuff is uh, complicated and expensive. Um, you might not be able to kind of get all the information you need, but why not take an approach where you can see what information is there, what data is there that we can feed in yeah, and see how that impacts based on, you know, informed by, say, a, a, something like the LTEM model. Yeah, yeah. And we can see, you know, evidence that people have the knowledge there. We can see a bit of evidence of ROI there, we can see, you know, we can see this number of people turned up and pull all that together. Um, you have a kind of portfolio approach to evaluation where, you know, you can kind of tell a story on, based on the, the, the available information and, um, and, and you can become more sophisticated in, in, in time over trying to fill in yeah. the holes. I thought that was an interesting approach, you know, putting yes. that in a kind yeah. of pragmatic box, which is definitely where Kevin M. Yates lives, for instance. Yeah, I suppose that I'd make a distinction there between what is the case. So Ben's saying, go with what you've got. What is the case here? That's very different from what ought to be the case. Yeah. Two entirely different forms of a business process. And I would say evaluation, the problem is we don't have enough ought thinking. The trouble with the is one is that people will just settle down with their crappy. If I mean, most people don't have that data. They just have crappy, happy sheet data or how many people turned up for the course, or SCORM output, you know, did they complete the course? Who cares? I don't care if they completed it or not. I want to know whether they learned anything or not. So the danger with the, you know, just focusing on what is the case is you don't get the what ought to be the case. And uh, what ought to be the case is, did it really help the organization? Because you're always looking to improve. I think evaluation, what's the goal of evaluation? The goal of evaluation is decision-making by senior management. And, you know, I want, the, I, want, I, want, I want this evaluated because I've spent a lot of money. I want to know what impact it's had on this organization. I want to see if it's been worthwhile and what that impact has been. I don't think you get that by just sort of saying, well, we've only got this and we've only got that, and then we'll come at this conclusion. I say, well, hold on. I, that's not what the marketing department are saying. They're giving me a full analysis, a full evaluation of that last campaign, what didn't, what did work. We're going to go for a much bigger spend on leads generation and SEO next year and not give out leaflets. But, you know, learning people are still giving out leaflets in a sense, you know, and not evaluating it. Oh, did you like the leaflets? <laughs> well, that's uh, because, um, Donald, that's because marketing people are all geniuses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, I mean, there is something about learning from other areas of the business, though. And I think, uh, to be fair, you know, it's and to be fair to learning development, it's such a difficult thing to evaluate compared to some other areas of a business and finance, for example. You know, it's tricky. Yeah. Valerie Anderson. Valerie Anderson is Professor of Human Resource Development and Education at the University of Portsmouth, still living. A specific field of expertise are employability, standards in HRM, learning and development in work organization settings. Prior to her academic career, she worked in operational and consultancy learning and development roles in private and public sector organizations. You can tell I'm reading from a prepared biography here. (laughs) Uh, She's chair of the European University Forum for HRD. She also chairs the British Standards Institution. I haven't checked, actually, to my shame, whether 
the European University Forum for HIT still exists, given yeah. after Brexit, but there you go. Would it matter? <laughs> yeah, careful. She also <laughs> the British Standards Institution, BSI committee, responsible for standards development and human capital yeah. management, yeah. and is an active member of the International Organization for Standardization, ISO, obviously. Technical committee focused on the development of international standards for HRM. And I think she um, wrote the first standard for um, L&D, which is interesting. Does she have an evaluation model? Of course she does. Yeah. <laughs> really interesting addition to this lineup of evaluation specialists, because like Brinkerhoff, she frames evaluation in a very different and distinctive way. Like, you know, you, you could say that Wills is, is distinctive and different, but on the other hand, it does kind of build on the, the, the Kirkpatrick levels. As with other models with, uh, with her, there's a lot of detail here, but I think it's fair to sum it up by saying of all the approaches we've covered, this one is the most laser-like focused on alignment with the organization's commercial objectives. Do you think that's fair to say, Donald? I think that was perfect phrase there, John. I think that sums it up better than I could. I mean, I first came across this, this is years ago, and I, I remember reading it. It was a CIPD paper, I think I read it from, and... I went, wow, this is so simple. You know, like, but like lots of really good ideas. It was very good because of its simplicity. And it had sort of just surfaced, oh, it got rid of all the problems I thought that I'd seen in the other models. So I've been a big fan of this, but hardly anybody knows about Valerie Anderson or the model in a way, way but I really like it. And I, I like it because of this laser-like focus on aligning your learning goals with your business goals. So having done both, been involved in the learning world and also run businesses and been, you know, sort of, you know, board level type on, on, on many, many businesses and large organizations. I think that's what really matters. You know, when you're on the other side of the fence and you're not in L&D, this is what I would like from my L&D department, alignment. And it's not only alignment. She says there are two different things. There's a valuation challenge, but a value challenge. It's all about value. What value do you offer my organization? You know, as a CEO of an organization, I would be asking that question. And then she has a bit, she keeps, so she has a, a laser-like focus on the, the, the most important issue of alignment so that you don't get this over-engineering problem. And I think over-engineering is what some of the models suffer from. And that they're gathering too much low-level, happy sheet type detail, you know, did they attend type detail to be meaningful? That's not really what any senior manager wants to see. She goes for the big picture. And then, first of all, she starts with the, she's got a couple of stages here. Well, of course, it's, it's a well worked out model. It's not, you know, Mickey Mouse, but she starts with the current alignment against your strategy. In other words, get your business strategy first. And I often say this read your company accounts, read what your company has said to the market this year about what you're going to be doing next year to get a, if you work in LD and you haven't read your own company prospectus, that's ridiculous, you know, because that should be your guide. Everything should cascade from the strategic objectives of the company. Now, when you, that's what she's asking you to do here. Evaluate how closely the learning aligns with the strategic. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be, you know, it could be increased sales. It could be a realignment. It could be acquisitions, all sorts of things. The second stage is, and this is where it gets interested, and she has her four methods, as it were, but I think they're pretty good. So what methods do you use for evaluating the learning itself once you've got that alignment? First of all, she talks about just, well, how, how good is this learning stuff in your organization? She talks about alignment of the L&D department with strategic function. That's nice. 
Because it's not about what you've produced, it's whether you've got the right people, the right documentation, the right outputs, the right processes to align with the business. That's learning function, number one. The second one, which I really like, so everybody knows ROI, very few people know about ROE, return on expectation. I like this phrase. In other words, what expectations did we have about this learning program and you know the learning design experiences? And what did we want from this originally? Because people are very poor at articulating that. And I don't mean learning objectives, they're, they're terribly fine-grained. What did we want it to do for the business? Return on expectation, which is different from return on investment, which tends to be, you know, what's the payback period? How much increased productivity we're going? Can you turn that into a number against what we cost on what we actually spent on the training program? Or is this intervention better than the last one? And what's the difference? Is it cheaper? You know, a real numbers approach to things. And then the last one is benchmarking which I also like. I mean, training people should be thinking, we did a benchmarking thing. Yeah, we Ben Ben and I designed a, a, a data benchmarking service around AI on uh, for Learning Pool, and we implemented that so you could benchmark yourself to see where you were on the data maturity curve. <laughs> I really like that tool, but I think training very often doesn't benchmark itself enough, or it's so horribly complicated, the benchmarking process costs so much money that they don't do it. But I think you can benchmark against two things. Internally, against what you've done before, and what perhaps didn't exist, and how much you've improved, and also external standards for other people in your sector, by and large. I'm not too sure about benchmarking against, you know, all and sundry. And then, and then of course, you know, you know, people are different. Organizations are different. Our stage three is, you know, if, you know, make sure that you tailor this for your organization and don't go for generic things. Your organization will have strategic goals. If you're, let's say, a big charity, uh, you might be very different from a defense company, you know. But in other words, tailor this alignment according to what your organization is and where it's going. So I really, I really like that. It shares, a, it shares a lot of detail here about, you know, looking at short-term functions and long-term functions as always, you know, senior management's trust in the learning contribution. Do they actually trust what you're telling them as opposed to as opposed to the metrics which you're going to deliver to them? So there's more to this than meets the eye, but it's simple as a laser-like focus, to use your phrase, and she has a very clear set of ways or means to the end. I think talking about uh, return on expectation, you've really given me an idea of what that is. I've always been puzzled by that particular acronym because return on investment is very clear. Return on expectation, whose expectations, what sort of expectations. Yeah, well, and what well, you're saying, in a way, ROI is a subset of ROE, isn't it? Because you might have wider. I mean, you know, if, if with my marketing head on, I'd say, Okay, your ROI with the marketing campaign, will, yeah. you know, how many more widgets did we sell? Yeah. There will have been other expectations of marketing activities that were to do with kind of like building up your brand equity, um, you know, um, competitive positioning against competitors, um, and high level influencing and, and, and stuff like that. So, what yeah. sort of things could, well, she's, in she's, context, other things would come into return on expectation? Well, to be fair, if I, if I recall this right, I think. Valerie's quite specific on this and quite nicely specific. So I'll try and give my own example. I think she gives, I think there are examples like 
if you've got something that takes eight days and you cut it down to three, then you have to prove that that happened. It's that sort of right. expectation. But let me give you an example from marketing. Let's suppose I say, oh, there's this new tool called ChatGPT, and it writes uh, it writes blogs really quickly. In other words, we do a blog every three days at the moment, but we could probably do a blog a day with a human plus chat GPT. So that would give us, you know, eight blog, you know, let's say, let's say we could do nine blogs a week as opposed to two. Well, all she's saying is the expectation there is you do nine and not two. Make sure you do nine. So it's a it's that fine-grained measure of what you expected as an output from this, which is not turning it into return on investment and numbers and savings and profit. Uh, it's that middle ground. Did you achieve these particular goals? And that's all about transfer into action. That's what's nice about return on expectation. Okay, you did this training on prompting, but did it actually result in eight, in eight blogs as opposed to three? Hmm. So I, I, I quite like that. It's very simple language, return on expectation, but I think it's quite nice. Yeah. I mean, you might have the expectations that the blogs would actually be readable and say well, something. Yeah, well, of course, yeah, you can do I, well, of course, yeah, that you would you'd put the sort of, I think that's absolutely, it's like prompting, you'd put your context your and your parameters, your expectation, you know, more detail about that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Paraphrasing, John. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, you know, as a person who's written a lot of blogs and, and paid yeah. cash money for it, it's a bit worrying to me at the moment. That well, I have to say. And, and have a 16,000, 1,600-word 1, um, blog back by lunchtime for Fiverr. <laughs> Yeah, as as I say, yeah, as I was saying that, I was going, oh shit, you know. <laughs> I know you mean, I know exactly what you mean there. You know that there's a quality issue as well. Now we could go into that in another podcast. There's been some amazing things research just came out over the weekend, in fact, uh, from Stanford and Harvard about ChatGPT not only massively saving you time, but giving you forty percent increase in quality. Oh. I really recommend people to look at the paper by Ethan Mollock on this and the team at Harvard who did it. We went into the Boston Consulting Group and on, on this issue, but it's an interesting issue on evaluation. We took 750 consultants and gave uh, gave a bunch of them uh, chat GPT and then looked at the difference between those that didn't have it and those that did. And basically those with it were faster, they met their goals quicker, They had, but, but more importantly, they had much better quality output. So funnily enough, you know, it's when you use this stuff well, not you don't just get it to write a blog and then publish it off the page. Yeah. That's not going to give you quality, but uh, when you're using it well. So but that, that would be an example. I would, you know, the, what is the evaluation of the use of generative AI in your organization? Well, give it a go because the research is looking very strong in this. Yeah. Interesting. Well, part of my expectation is that we will wrap this up in <laughs> the next kind of 20 minutes or so. <laughs> uh, so perhaps it's time to move on to summing up. Donald, at the end of this process of evolution we've been tracing here, beginning in the 1950s, with Kirkpatrick's slash Katzel, are we any nearer yet to having a rigorous yet practical way of evaluating learning? You know, and rigorous yet practical being an important thing there. Uh, have we improved over that time, do you think? In our capability, if not in the actual yeah. application? Well, the straight up honest answer to that is no. No. That's a sad answer, but I'm going to supplement it by there's some really good news coming, and that is a game-changing 
paradigm shift, really, that gets us out of the trap of just relying on these rather old, you mentioned threads there, threadbare, I would say, evaluation methods. My own view of this is that we've now already entered an era of data and AI, and that this is the game changing, game changer, because it's so much easier now to measure performance, uh, to really gather data, to interpret data, and to do what we've always wanted to do, and that's find out what the impact is in an organization in relation to business strategy and business information and data. And I think what's coming along here, one would hope, is the abandonment in the technology front of SCORM. God, that's, you know, how long have we waited for that stupid standard, the de facto standard that needs dumped as soon as possible? Hopefully towards XAPI. It might not be XAPI, but it will be something because there isn't an organization in the land now that isn't taking da data that much more seriously. Now, we have things like XAPI, the shift to 2D to 3D. We've got learning record stores. Uh, we've got all that stuff bubbling under and some big organizations are doing it and doing it well. But it's time that we made the sort of flick because I don't think we're ever going to solve the evaluation problem unless we have data to evaluate. And SCORM doesn't cut it. It just doesn't. It's, it's bums on seats data. And it's the wrong end of the learner. So I think, you know, when I was at Learning Pool, I felt I was working in an organization that was really pushing its customers in towards doing this, you know? Integrating learning data with business data, looking at XAPI. <laughs> because learning happens constantly, both formally and informally, offline and online. If you want to track all this, you need to have a method, a data stat, set of data standards, first of all. You know, if you want the right data, you have to tell people what sort of data you want, where it's going to come from, in what format, where you're going to store it, and what tools you're going to use to analyze that data. And I don't mean crappy little dashboards with little dials like in the front of your car. I think L&Ds, you know, by and large, when you give them dashboards, it's like old dashboard, no car. So they sit looking at the dashboards, forgetting the fact that the dashboard's there to help you drive the car slower, faster. Do I need more fuel? Do it, but, you know, but they tend to get stuck in just observing. It's like an endpoint. So I think the good news here is that most people I've spoken to are really quite keen on moving forward and upwards, because this will allow us to evaluate. I think the problem is just quite simply, you know, you do a training course, people walk out the door, you don't, you don't know where they're going or what they're doing afterwards, and you have no way of gathering the data from the workplace, unless you go into the workplace and follow people around or get them to self-report, and it never happens. Suddenly, we have the promise of being able to do that, you know, and gather the right data from the right people with the right tools to do the sort of learning analytics, but more importantly, business analytics at the same time, to come to a conclusion on what Valerie Anderson called alignment. And it was, are we, does, you know, is what we are doing aligned with the business? And secondly, are we creating value for the business? So I think we're moving very quickly into a form of data analysis that helps us do this, this stuff. Anecdotally, um, there, there are some indications that things might be improving on evaluation. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, Danny Johnson from uh, Red Thread uh, published something the other day on, on, on LinkedIn, which showed, showed that um, the vendor market is selling more analytic learning analytics kit yeah. than ever before. There's, there's is, that red, is that Red Thread? I'm using it or not. And, 
they 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 are providing more of it. So uh, uh, you know they're close. Yeah. So, well, uh, they, I think that's right. There are some specific vendors that sell learning analytics that are very very strong in this stuff. But again, you have to be careful with this because. Where are they getting the data from? You know, from SCORM, from LMS. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, well, another thing are is, you that, spending, are you spending a whole lot of money on them going in and doing a lot of qualitative survey work? Well, that, another thing that people are saying is they they've got more data than ever before now, uh, in in the various kind of yeah, true. you know pieces of um, HRIS software and yeah, that's, software. that's correct. Yeah. I mean, they might be in different systems. You know, they might be kind of bringing together and harmonizing, but but people, there's a general feeling that we've got more data now than ever before. And some people are kind of abandoning um, L&D type uh, analysis tools and saying, you know, I want a data lake and I'm going to use kind of more generic data analysis tools. Well, that's absolutely right. And that's exactly what I was pointing towards there. So perhaps there's light at the end of the tunnel? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly what I'm saying here. I think there are two things, underlying things here. One is that the pendulum is swinging towards more use of technology and learning. That's been clear for a long time, but it also obviously accelerated in the early 2000s with the internet and has massively accelerated by and large on the back of, you know, the whole LMS content type business. But as that swings, if if you use more technology, you then have the chance of gathering data because that's what technology is good at. It can do it automatically. As we swing into the next era of technology, the whole AI shtick thing, then, of course, that's AI is a data-driven technology. You need data to train the models. So you go, we are, we, these large organizations are all building these systems that will make it much, much easier. In fact, it will be an imperative upon L&D, or will look rather stupid if the rest of the business are doing these sophisticated data analysis uh, not tricks, but uh, you know, data analysis that feeds into the top tier of management, and we're left behind with happy sheets. I mean, it's already embarrassing to be honest. The happy sheet thing has been for decades, but think about the chief exec of the future when you take your happy sheet data. It's, you know, it's a laughable, really. But what you said was right there. I think uh, sophistication, more data, but it's not more data. It's the right data that matters data formats, what you do with it, and the tools used for analysis are sometimes nothing to do with learning. They're more generic tools. Like a good example of that is in, if you take OpenAI's uh, ChatGPT, if you use the API, you there's a service in there that was called Interpreter, and I think it's Code Interpreter. It's now called the Data something or another. It's like having a data scientist sitting next to you in the room. Mm. You can feed it data or a spreadsheet, and it will. you can say, is there anything wrong with this data? And it points out, oh, maybe that. That looks wrong in the spreadsheet there. And then you can do it and say, well, can you give me an output in a histogram or whatever appropriate format is in four colors for presentation to my chief executive? And hey, presto, it just does it on the spot. So I think we're looking at more agency from L&D and HR and from the personal level, you know, where you're able to do things without having necessarily having to learn skills about the use of sophisticated graphics and learning analytics and data packages. It will be like speaking to it, and it will give you the results. We're already there. This it's mind blowing how good this side of of uh, the GPT API is. So a lot of that kind of objection, complexity, and cost comes out because AI is there to handle the complexity and it does. Just, yeah, it does it behind the scenes. Capability. We should never kind of confuse. We have the That's capability right. to do this. With this, will definitely happen because things can get in the way. You know. Yeah, I think that's right. And to be well, fair, you know, 
L and D and HR are people people and they're good they're good people who do good work with people because of people people but it doesn't make them very good necessarily at statistical analysis and the sort of data issues that you're faced or evaluation and uh, and therefore if we get these assistants that really help you or you know automate the process behind the scenes then so much the better and of course that's happening uh, what you get is a hiatus in the market between old school technology here and new AI kids on the block, you know, so you see share prices plummeting as we speak uh, on all sorts of fronts and, uh, you know, uh, revenues coming off and content production and so on. But I think what we're seeing here is a hiatus until the AI thing shakes out. You know, it's already been fed into and being used by huge numbers of people who are in the Microsoft camp. Google are going to be releasing Gemini soon. That's going to revolutionize their platform. Uh, you have it in Adobe, you're going to have it in all sorts of platforms. Most of the LMS vendors have added it. Blackboard, I've already got it on board, as have several others. They're all looking at it. So the times there are changing, John. On that, uh, <laughs> on that quite optimistic bombshell. Yeah. yeah. I know. Good change. Uh, perhaps we should close out. I have to say, Donald, thank you very much for another really interesting session. I, I learned a lot from that. I yeah, no, it was it was fun. Yeah, you know, it's it's a, it's an odd sort of outlier of a topic, but so many people, you know, want to know more about it, and it's difficult getting to grips with what what's there and where it's going. So hopefully, hopefully, who knows if we've got it got it right here? But we've had a good bash. Well, who knows if the listeners get the test right when I send it round? But we'll <laughs> yes. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, John. Thank you. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. Sound edit is by Isaac Peacock. Social media by Jay Curtis. Graphics by David O'Connor. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. If you're a fan of these podcasts and want to support us and get exclusive member benefits, go to patreon.com forward slash learning hack.